0: So on behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to a special edition June 2019 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and uh, our special guest. So my guest today is Dr. Richard Irwin, professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester, Mass. He's also a master fellow of the American College of Chess Physicians and, of course, the editor-in-chief of Chess for the last 14 years. His tenure about to wrap up. And he's here to talk about his special editorial in the latest edition of Chess on being the editor-in-chief of the journal Chess, 14 Memorable Years. Richard, thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Sure, my pleasure. So, you know, your article, I read it, it was fantastic. It was a a wonderful, I think, mix of sort of the uh, trials and tribulations of being in charge of such an important journal, and I think also a great summary of the advances I think that you brought about uh, during your tenure and then obviously clearly some humor in the sense of of how people people interact with the editor so um, let's just kind of keep this as freeform as you want what are some of the things you'd like to highlight or maybe we'll, we'll start up with what are you most proud of during your 14 years
1: yeah so there are uh, I mean lots of things to be proud of I mean, as I said in the, uh, the article, CHEST um, voted in uh, 2009 to be among the 100 most influential journals of biology and medicine in the uh, last 100 years. And this designation was awarded to CHEST as well as 99 other journals by the prestigious international 11,000-member Special Libraries Association. Chess competed in a field of nominated journals uh, of pulmonology and related respiratory sciences and was the only journal in these categories to make it into the uh, top 100. We've been very proud of consistently uh, ranking first and third party readership surveys by an independent uh, advertising group called Cantor Media and led... All journals for pulmonologists uh, as the source of information most uh, preferred by those in practice and then looking at the impact factor and a variety of other factors that relate to the impact factor ranking consistently second in both respiratory and critical care categories uh, to a metric that is referred to as the eigenfactor Um, And that factor weighs citations from the most influential journals. So if CHEST was cited, let's say, in the New England Journal of Medicine or Nature, that's the kind of influential journals that the eigenfactor looks at. And it also eliminates self-citations. So, I I mean, I I, I think from the very beginning, there are lots of flaws related to the impact factor. And one of them that uh, I've always found to be very disturbing is that journals try and game the impact factor. And I mean, I I think that that's been something that I've passionately uh, shied away from in making absolutely certain that all the associators and those members of the editorial board understand that it's actually unethical uh, to game the impact factor because when you do that, uh, you misrepresent the importance of uh, or the influence of the journal.
0: No, I agree. I was thinking about this, the, the, as you just highlighted, you know, the impact of chest or the the prestige of chest, you know, impact factor is one of those numbers that people throw around, but, but it seems to me that that's a number that someone who's trying to publish is only most focused upon purely from the perspective of typically their own promotion back home. But instead, the award that comes from the association of all the specialty libraries, the the people who are essentially saying, you know, what journals seem to be read, checked out, reviewed, you know, back in the day when you would, you know, print copies and everything else, what journals actually utilize? And then when you talk to people who read journals and, and, and clinicians who are practicing medicine, say, what journals do you grab that you trust? And to see, you know, chest consistently there and getting these, you know, these accolades and others not, I think speaks of so highly of the journal and speaks highly of the of the developments that you know that you helped see a transition because you, without a doubt, took on chess during a, a major transition in the sense of the amount of electronic representation of the journal I mean without a doubt, prior to you, there was electronic versions and you know the the revolution of everything being available online, but it is definitive here solid during your tenure that it was You know, we became more of a digital journal than than a print journal, if you will, in a sense of an online presence. That had to be a tough transition. I I mean, it, it was, but
1: because everybody does look at the impact factor, and while it was important for us to actually make sure the impact factor found a way of rising, we didn't want to do it in a way that would betray what CHEST is. It's a clinical journal, and um, what our readers, you know, expected to see in chest. And so it really related to, you know, their practice of medicine. So clinical research is obviously something that we focused on and wanted to make sure that we always would be focusing on that. I mean, as you know, clinical journals are less likely to uh, garner a higher impact factor than uh, those journals that actually were looking at more basic research. You know, you had asked me at the outset, like, you know, uh, so what, you know, were we proud of? Uh, On a personal level, there was something else that turned out, in my mind, to be my proudest memory, and that really was receiving the accolades from Al Sofer, who was the fifth editor-in-chief of Chest. And it was because uh, one day he pulled me aside and uh, said I was doing a great job. And so that, that was actually very important to me because Al actually turned out, to give my research academic career a jump start. So there was a, a manuscript a review that uh, Sid Brayman and Mark Rosen, who have also been presidents of uh, CHEST, um, and I actually ended up writing in 1976. It got rejected by 10 journals, wow. and we were about ready to give up. And I had heard that, you know, this guy Al Sofer was... He loved being a mentor and was very approachable, so I ended up calling him at Chess. He answered his own phone himself. I told him the story. He said, you know, send me the article and let me take a look at it. So he takes a look at it, and actually within a week he called me back. He said, you know, this is really novel. I've never seen anything like this. This is great. Unfortunately, Chess doesn't publish those kind of reviews. I mean, hadn't been doing it at that time. But he said, why don't you wait a little bit of time and actually send it uh, to the Archives of Internal Medicine because in addition to being the Editor-in-Chief of CHEST, I'm also going to become the Editor-in-Chief of the Archives. (laughs) And I actually think we'll probably be able to publish it in the Archives of Internal Medicine. And he did. And that article actually led Sid, Mark, and I to understand that there was lots unknown about how you would manage cough. And we had an opportunity to set our then academic research um, career actually on track and did so for the next, you know, two and three and four decades. And I credit Al for doing that.
0: Al over, you know, clearly a a giant in, in fact we've we've done a giant in Chest medicine with Al and such a, a leader within chest and for the journal and to to have someone who then could mentor, you know, this sort of relative start of your career and move you and then to, to get the personal accolade for it. that had to just I can understand why that you had to be on cloud nine that day <laughs> yeah definitely definitely <laughs> So let me ask you, because I've always wondered, you know, how someone becomes an editor. What made you throw your hat into that ring? What was that personal drive? Because I think, you know, outside of just the peer review and and publishing process that we, you know, we all, we submit, we get, you know, reviews and you do reviews, but, you know, to to then want to sort of uh, helm the the journal, it's quite the undertaking, but it's also a relative major career shift, right? And so what drew you to wanting to be the editor?
1: I mean, I think it came at a time that I was, um, I I mean, at a senior level in my own institution. Uh, So at that particular point in time, I had been the division chief of pulmonary, and then it became critical care and allergy and sleep, and I'd been doing that for about 27 years. Um, And I was looking for something else to do. I was just finishing up as being the president of the American College of Chess Physicians, and I knew that Jay Block, in a year or two after that, was uh, going to be retiring. And so I thought, gee, you know, if I was the editor-in-chief, I'd have an opportunity to further the science of medicine, meaning, uh, yeah. well, because because as the editor, you can decide what gets published, and that would help advance the field, And if it was a clinical journal, um, you know, what we ended up publishing had the opportunity to improve the practice of medicine. So uh, by choosing the best articles and filtering out the worst articles, um, I have the opportunity to also perhaps improve the practice of medicine. I, I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching, and so editors are responsible to their readers to educate the readers, and so that would be another reason to do it. Um, yeah, I guess because, it's the ultimate
0: form of teaching, right?
1: I mean, it definitely is. It, it's also a way of staying abreast of what's new in the field. Um, I had also been uh, a co-editor of uh, a little niche journal called uh, the Journal of Intensive Care Medicine. I was the editor of textbooks, spent a lot of time uh, helping to uh, mold what became the Seek product of uh, huh and started out under uh, Jack Wegg, who, who actually conceived of it. And I thought that I could, you know, find a way to improve chess and take it to a higher level. So, I mean, there, there were a lot of reasons why I ended yeah. up
0: applying for the job. Well, I'm glad you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Well, I mean, it, you know, from a personal perspective, it had an impact on my career. I mean, you're the, the whole idea of, of why we have these podcasts and this whole branch of, of way to you know get more information out was through your leadership and and you know giving me the opportunity to give this a shot and so I you know on a personal level I got to give you the big thanks uh because uh, you've helped steer my career as well so thank you well I, and and you know thanks for the great
1: reviews and uh contributions that you've made, obviously, as the podcast editor and also for being the major person to interview our Giants in Chess Medicine series.
0: I'll tell you, like you said, you know, it's fun, right? It actually is fun. You know, that that part, especially getting to know some of the people that have helped to to develop this field, it's, it's always been unbelievable. So let's also talk early on. So you know, you, you sign up for the job, you throw your hat in the ring, you get it, and it you know, unbelievably exciting. And then they show you the office, and then all the stuff starts to hit you. So there was some right at the very beginning, uh, there, a relative beginning. There were sort of two major. Things that landed, I think, on your desk. This issue about cardiology and the issue of backlog of accepted articles, and I know it, you know, it created some controversy. And I, you share some some uh, anecdotes of your experience along that. I wanted to see if you wanted to expand upon that for our listeners, because many people may not, obviously, even be aware, you know, depending on when they've come into the field and started reading Chest, unaware of, you know, the kind of the early years, if you will, of your tenure.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there were two major decisions that had to be made when we came on. I mean, the first is if it isn't broken, you don't want to replace it. You don't want to fix it. And so, I mean, Jay Block, who had preceded me and had done the job for 12 years, um, ends up retiring and didn't want to harm the journal in a way where he had actually made it much better. And so, There were a number of focus groups that I ended up having with a variety of um, different members of the CHEST organization. We actually sent out surveys um, asking them, you know, if there was anything that was going to be replaced, what did they think? And our specialty at that particular point in time, you know, had evolved into, you know, the three major areas of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep, we also were the home of the antithrombotic guidelines, which, you know I think were, and have continued to be, the trendsetter of you know, what's best in high quality, not only systematic reviews, but also trustworthy guidelines. And Great. so you know, obviously, we didn't want to eliminate things that we knew were still winners. But it became very clear that the best cardiology articles were no longer going to Chest. Um, and while maybe about 10% of the membership of Chest is made up of cardiologists, it turns out that because the best articles were no longer going to Chest, uh, that we wanted to uh, filter out, you know, those cardiology-related articles that actually weren't going to be missed. And so pure cardiology articles were those that we decided that we probably weren't going to publish anymore, and we wanted to focus on cardiovascular issues that related to pulmonary critical care and sleep, and we wanted to continue to publish those things that related to antithrombotic therapy. And so the major cardiology articles that we would continue to publish turned out to be those related to atrial fibrillation because of the importance of antithrombotic therapy in that particular condition. And and actually, we have been getting close to the very best articles on atrial fibrillation. So that was a very big decision that we ended up making. And, you know, you can imagine the 10% of the membership of CHEST that were cardiologists, they were upset, and I think rightfully so. But that was one of the tough decisions we had to make to, um, I think, you know, increase the quality of the articles that we ended up publishing. But clearly the biggest decision that we had to make is what were we going to do with the 500 accepted articles that Jay Block and his leadership team had actually accepted and that I ended up inheriting as right. a backlog. Um, we had a lot of discussions and we asked people, you know, what their thoughts were, what we could do. There were some. I don't think that really meant it, but there were some who suggested, well, you just say that you re-reviewed them and you're going to reject them all. Yeah. And so <laughs> I thought that if I did that, somebody would not only flatten my tires, but <laughs> I, I would probably be bodily harmed. Yeah. Um, and, but, but those were my second and third thoughts. Uh, the first thought really was, you know, that's not fair. So, so we clearly weren't going to do that. Right. And so what we decided to do was to publish them as quickly as possible. It clearly hurt us for two years with respect to the impact factor yeah. um, because, you know, the impact factor is a ratio of those that are cited over a two-year period of time divided by those articles that you end up publishing over the same two-year period of time. It was not likely that a lot of those 500 articles were actually going to be cited by anybody. Right. So. We decided to take the hit and to go ahead and do that, uh, but we ended up having a lot of funny correspondence that took place. I mean, there were some really nasty things that uh, people had said um, to me, and, and the things that were the most humorous um, with respect to the communications that I got, and specifically emails I saved, and we ended up publishing in that commentary that you know we're now talking about today.
0: Oh, there! I mean, for the for the listeners, you, you absolutely have to read it because some of these comments are, absolutely. First of all, many people in our profession are quite witty <laughs> um, and uh, have a really great barb of sarcasm and the ability to transmit that. You you publish the you know the, the anonymously the words, but it's uh, it's pretty funny. That but that had to be a challenge. I mean, I, I guess. But it sounds like it was an important, you know, not just a decision on a whim, but an important decision to say. You know, if we want to move this journal forward, but be fair to those who were told their paper was accepted, let's sort of pull the band-aid off. Let's get these things out there. We'll take our hits, but now we're moving forward. We're going to change, you know, the direction of the journal in the sense of you know what we're going to accept, the quality, of what we're going to accept. We'll, that will you know change the flavor in a good way, and let's steer this forward. And that sounds like that in the end was the, you know, the summary decision that obviously I'm sure involved a lot of meetings and a lot of discussion. Yeah. I but I mean
1: again it provided me with I think the funniest of uh, uh of memories uh to uh <laughs> you know to share with others. You know it's interesting over the years uh I'm sure that every once in a while you may have something that you've published or wanted to get published and thought it was terrific and it got rejected. And right. so, you know, people take that very, very hard. Some people take it personally, some people take it too personally. Right. And even though we warn people when we send rejection letters that uh, please do not comment in a reply-to-all way because
0: the journal, it staff, everybody.
1: the journal staff is also going to be copied on that. So there are some swear words that I did not end up sharing in this commentary, um, and, you, and no matter what language people swear in, you know exactly what they're
0: saying. Well, I think you you talk about you were accused of being anti-Semitic based right. on the, uh, the rejection. Yeah, I mean, and I love your response, your response back to the person. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I didn't always respond, but uh, for that one, I I absolutely had to respond. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And it was interesting that the person who said that to me, obviously was Jewish, and came from Israel, said that we published more from a certain country than him. And so we set out due diligence, and actually we looked at this other country, what percentage of the manuscripts they send us that we accepted. We did the same thing from Israel. It turns out that Israel, like, just blew this other country away. Um, (laughs) And that this particular individual who said that we never accepted anything of his, he actually did better than the average from his own country and this other country. (laughs) And then what was really Uh, unbelievable is Chess had a meeting with the Chess chapter in Israel, and I was in a panel, and the person who actually sent this to me was the moderator at the panel.
0: Oh, that had to be perfect. Did you just give him a little wink? Oh, no.
1: He, so, you know, and then, of course, it was like he apologized. And
0: it well, was, that, it, it, know, it okay. the old rule, right? When you're crafting the angry email, let it sit for 24 hours and then decide whether you're going to send it or not. It's after the passions have cooled down a little, I think. That's yeah. uh, pretty funny. Um, you, have, you have another discussion, and I, I don't think I even realized this, um, about anonymous editorials. Knowing you and your style, when, when I'm reading this part of, the, of your editorial, it is something, I mean, I can feel the passion in your writing about this issue of anonymous editorials. And I would love for you to expand upon it, because I will freely claim my ignorance. I didn't know such a thing existed. Yeah, um, so the, maybe, maybe, hopefully, it doesn't exist much anymore in prestigious journals, but it sounds like it does.
1: So yeah, I, so The Lancet publishes unsigned editorials, And when you speak to not the editor-in-chief, but when you speak to other people, they go like, well, all of the people on the editorial staff, you know, take responsibility for the article. Well, I don't accept that because there's got to be somebody who actually had a reason to do it and, you know, was the person who actually put pen to paper. But uh, The Lancet is, in my understanding, is the only major medical journal that still ends up publishing unsigned editorials. I I mean, it it got my attention because uh, we had just published the 2006 chest cough guidelines, and the quality of them has actually been independently evaluated, and of all of the cough guidelines, they clearly are at the highest quality and therefore the best. Whoever wrote the editorial... Actually, took exception to the fact that there were some that couldn't be graded, um, and turned out to be consensus-related um, suggestions that that ended up making it. But but the editorialist ended up saying that it was a bunch of garbage because you know there were almost no graded recommendations or suggestions that were made, which turned out not to be true. It was, yeah, I mean, there the was majority the facts, were. Yeah. So uh, I did have an opportunity to write a response, Um, actually a letter to the editor that they didn't respond to uh, in The Lancet. And then I wrote an editorial in chest saying that uh, this is what ended up happening. And I wanted to be completely transparent because I asked world-class, I think they're from your institution, uh, world-class ethicists, medical ethicists uh, at the University of Chicago actually write a commentary And they um, actually took exception with the fact that anybody today, whenever that was published, um, they took exception to the fact that somebody is doing that. And then I had the opportunity to actually find um, somebody who had been the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, um, who also was commenting and taking exception to that, that anybody, and this was back in the 90s, would still be publishing unsigned editorials. Right. Um, And so, you know, having had the opportunity to write that editorial, having ethicists um, actually weigh in on whether or not it's ethical or unethical, and they did believe that it was unethical, um, I felt a little bit better. And then having had the opportunity to write this commentary, I, I had an opportunity to say in my experience in the last 14 years what was the most hypocritical thing that ended up happening Um, I had the opportunity to mention it again. So I probably don't have a lot of friends at the Lancet, but, um,
0: (laughs) you know, so be it. So be it. But, you know, this comes back to exactly what you said at the beginning about wanting to take on this job. I mean, it is, you know, you have a massive responsibility, you know, because once something's published in whatever journal, especially ones that are a high-impact factor, and it doesn't matter what it is, it carries a gravitas to it. You know, people will quote it. They'll be on rounds quoting it. And and again, you can publish editorials, but you, you know, like I think your point and the point of even the Ethicist is the unnamed one, the, you know, the inability to see if there's a bias there, that there's a personal rancor between the two people. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, uh, it's sort of hidden into the uh, language of this is the prestige of a journal and we take issue with this. Well, as opposed to an individual with an intellectual conflict of interest taking issue with it, right? I mean, there's a, that's a big difference. Absolutely. Yeah. So i didn't want to like read specific things from your article so that people will read it but but I have to read the one because it just i, I couldn't stop laughing the more I thought about it over and over was you know talking about the most misguided person who you know like all like a lot of journals, they encourage people to say, "Hey, do you have some preferred reviewers and do you have some non preferred reviewers and you know everybody I'm sure does their best to try to honor that, but there's the issues of peer review and enough people signing up and et etc but the person who wrote an article uh, and submitted to Chess and said to make sure that Richard Irwin did not review the article. Um, and then they made you. It wasn't a, a doppelganger of you. Um, I, I just, Oh, wow, that, that just, the, the audacity. And I love your little comment that I did review the manuscript. <laughs> you know, as you read through this article, you will physically laugh out loud while you're reading this section. It's so perfectly written. Yeah, it was, that, that really was not only the
1: most misguided, but the most incredible thing that, that... Well, actually, it wasn't the most incredible thing. One of the more incredible things really relates to the amount of scientific misconduct that we end up coming across. And, yeah, um, you know, I think it, it, it sort of speaks to where we are in society, because most of the time people don't know that they're doing something that's not right. But one of the funnier things that we came across with respect to scientific misconduct is... Uh, this one instance where I sent an article out for review and the person said, you know, I'm happy to review this, but I'm reviewing the exact same paper for another journal. (laughs) So, you know, when the people submit their manuscript, you know, they're asked a a variety of different questions. And one of them really relates to, you know, is this the only journal that you're submitting this to? And so they had basically sworn to the fact that this is the only journal that they've submitted it to. So, it's always a good idea to, and we always do, give somebody who we think has done something wrong the opportunity to share with us, how is it possible that you know, this could have happened? So we get in touch with this individual and say, you know, you said that no part of this manuscript was submitted to another journal, yet we found out that you are actually, you submitted it to two um, journals at the same time. How is this happening? And the person said, oh, well, I've actually submitted it to three. So, you know, we thanked him and told him that it really wasn't good, rejected it, and then actually sent a letter to his division chief, his department chair, and his dean, um, you know, suggesting that the person need to take some kind of a course to understand what's right and wrong with medical and in medical publishing, and he should stay away from doing those things.
0: Yes, seriously. Wow. I look at no actually 3. <laughs> um <laughs> right. another an, another thing that you you comment about and and, and obviously um and, as I'm thinking um as Dr. Mazone takes over um I'm sure he'll be glad to hear this component and that's the whole process of peer review. You know the people who uh, you know will gladly submit all of their papers to chest but then gladly say no to every time you ask them to do a peer review. Um it's a voluntary process, obviously, but it's just as vital as putting your paper together and submitting it is having your peers review it from it's both, you know, it's scientific and clinical merit and, and every other component of the peer review process. But as as I think you highlight, it's it's also a perpetual struggle in some cases and not just saying yes or no, but something I know I've been guilty of, saying yes and then Two weeks later, having the associate editor having to start hounding you for your uh, mm. lack of review, um, despite agreeing. Uh, so, sorry. Um, but uh, could you highlight that a little bit? Um, because I think a lot of the people who are listening, probably maybe some of them don't even realize how to become a peer reviewer. You know, how to, is there a way to throw your name in on this hat? You know, especially some people that are early in their career and would like to start to get involved in the process.
1: Yeah, I think if you like to educate, if you like being a mentor, I mean, as I had said when you asked me, like, you know, why did I throw my hat in the ring in the first place uh, to become the editor-in-chief, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to do it, to advance the field, to make the practice of clinical medicine better, but also, you know, it's a way of educating and, and mentoring others. If one's interested in doing peer review, it's it's nice if, you know, you really have an area that you become accomplished in, um, inquiring, you know, can I, you know, review, and here's my CV, and I really, you know, am very experienced in this particular area. But for younger people, um, if you're obviously in a training program, if the mid-level or senior-level investigators in your program haven't asked you, um, let's say as a fellow or a junior faculty person, you know, I'd like to learn how to do a a good review. Um, Is it possible if you're invited, could you ask permission of the journal um, if, you know, I helped you do that review? You know, I mean, I think that's clearly a way of uh, getting involved. Um, But, you know, one of the ways that we knew would get us higher quality papers to to publish was to make sure that the reviews were better. And so, you know, when I initially estimated how many people on the editorial board I would need, I initially quite naively thought 25. I would invite those people and say, I, I would ask you probably to do one a month, We'll put you on the masthead, and this would be in your CV, and the, you know that's one of the ways of obviously paying people on the editorial board, in, in, right. so to speak. Right. Um, but then what became very clear is the electronic management system that J. Block introduced around 2004-2005. So we went from something like 2,000 manuscripts to review a year up to 3,600. Um, And so wanting to have somewhere between two and four reviewers until we were absolutely certain that we could get two quality reviews, um, we were getting somewhere, and and it's held fast since 2006, where we get about somewhere between 3,200 and 3,600 new manuscripts a year. That means that we could have somewhere around 40 to 60 original research articles a week you know, that we would have to then appoint reviewers for. So then it became very clear that to do a really good job, we really needed to markedly increase the number of people on the editorial board because the editorial board turned out to be, uh, for me, those individuals who were most knowledgeable and were going to do the best reviews.
0: Yeah. Wow. And so, you know, I was thinking about this as you just highlighted it. The very first review that I ever performed. I was a senior fellow, Jesse Hall was the person obviously doing the review, but he had gotten permission to see if I could mentor on a junior guy. And, um, you know, I remember the the process uh, quite well. And of course, learning from one of the best helped. Um, And, uh, but it was a a great entrance for myself to see the process. And, you know, I think like you said, for people that are very early in their careers or in their training right now, if they're listening, um, this is another key component of your education as part of your fellowship, and talk to your mentors and get involved in the peer review process, because the quality of the <clears throat> things that you read and get to quote and publish on rounds and discuss with your, you know, your team only continues if we have a good peer review process, and, you know, we, we need more people, because everyone's busy, but, you know, when you have your area of focus uh, that you can then become an expert in, you know, you get to be involved in this whole process, and it's, it is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it
1: turns out that, you know, in some areas, there are very few go-to people who you know are going to do a quality review. And so those individuals are, you know, constantly being asked to review for a variety of different journals. But even though that's the case, um, and getting back to, you know, the issue that you uh, were mentioning I mean, sometimes there would be people that get so many reviews that they just, you know, every time they get another manuscript to review, if it, let's say, comes from Chess, if they're not on the editorial board or one of our associate editors, they'll be declining, and I keep track of all of those uh, times that, people would be declining the invitations and then I'd also be keeping track of, you know, how often we're sending their papers out for review in (laughs) chess. So then I just remind them, you know, and then people feel they they didn't exactly realize, um, you know, that they were constantly rejecting. And so, I mean, I would very nicely just say, gee, I noticed that you haven't accepted, you know, for the last two or three years, you know, one of our invitations to review a paper, yet we're constantly getting papers from your group and sending them out for reviews and you should, um, rightly so, uh, expect us to actually do it and get high-quality reviews for you. Um, Is there an explanation as to why you're constantly turning us down? And then, I mean, as I had said in the the commentary, almost always somebody would feel a little bit of a twinge of guilt and then they would start (laughs) reviewing for us. But there was one person and only one who not only ended up turning us down, but actually sent blistering emails, you know, telling me that I had a lot of nerve, yeah. suggesting how he should be spending his time. Yeah. And, uh, huh. you know, and he didn't have time to review anybody else's papers. Right, well, um, he's so important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, so the individual knows who the individual is, um, and <laughs> we have not forgotten this individual in the chest office.
0: <laughs> um, something that's not in the commentary, but I just wonder if you have an opinion on that you'd like to share. There's been an explosion of online-only journals, and you know, as judging by my spam folder, which has two to three emails a day asking me to publish and/or be on the editorial board. Um, you know, one. I'm just curious if you, you thought about some of these explosion of journals. But two, from a branding perspective, many of them all contain the word "chest." There's the Chest Journal, the Journal of Chest, the This Chest, that. You know, um, and it starts to become an issue of. You know, you start to understand why corporations have a, a strong protection of their brand built into their DNA. Um, and so, just curious if you want to share any thoughts or commentary on that.
1: Yeah. So. I mean, I'm getting those things, too.
0: Um,
1: Yeah, (laughs) I've already, in in the last two weeks, now have gotten something on a weekly basis. I mean, it's people obviously trying to make money. This is part of the open access issue, you know, that has allowed this to actually take hold. And when anything has chest in the title, we have done something that other journals haven't done. We have actually taken them to court. There was one that talks about the Journal of Chest um, that we had them take down their website. Uh, They actually lost in court. It turned out to have been in the Chicago area because, obviously, the American College of Chest Physicians, the chest organization, is in the Chicago area. And so when chest is in the name, we have taken it seriously and gone after them because it gets very, very confusing. Um, I was actually invited to be on the editorial board of the Journal of Chest.
0: Um, <laughs> they heard you're not busy starting July 1, so. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: so this was actually probably about four or five years ago. Uh, but we, we take it very seriously. And, you know, I brought this issue up. So twice a year, um, the Respiratory Society journal editors meet, and once at the ATS and once at the uh, ERS meetings. And so when we brought this up, the comments were that, you know, it's a nuisance, but, um, you know, people understand and they know that uh, this is not something that we can do anything about. And then I just shared with them that, well, no, you you can do something about it. And um, it sometimes gets so confusing that, you know, we wouldn't want all of a sudden some papers that are of high quality actually going to the wrong place. Right. So we've taken it very seriously, but, uh, but there really isn't a lot that, you know, you can do about it other than taking them to court and making them take their website down. And, and it turns out that in underdeveloped countries, there are people that are probably, uh, you know, having their journal idea, you know, be created in a basement. And that's where their computer is. And that's, you know, where they're running these predatory journals.
0: Right. Well, and I think the concern is, is not just from a branding perspective and, and so forth and, and quality, but you know, for also again, people that are earliest in their careers, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get my paper, you know, published here, but having a, a publication in a, in a journal that essentially almost doesn't exist and has no ability to be indexed, et cetera, you're not advancing your own career. You're definitely not advancing the science. You're not advancing the clinical stuff. But you know, but but depending on where someone is is located and you know, they themselves might not know. I mean, I'm, I'm struck by when you said at the, the meeting with the other respiratory journals, you know, this, oh, people know the difference. Well, maybe everyone in that room and, and very senior people definitely know the difference. But people very early in their career, and depending on the level of mentorship they have, it, it, I would argue they don't always know. And if there's a language barrier, that might be the additional kind of confounder.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, one of the things that we've done is uh, the core leadership of the journal associate editors is take the stance that no matter, you know, how small the issue, if we have a a definite feeling about how things should go, I mean, we should find a way to actually uh, speak about the issue and do something about it when we think that it might negatively impact medical publishing.
0: Yeah. So, you know, normally I always sort of end a podcast by asking, you know, because the the review process, sometimes things get uh, shrunk down that someone submitted a large body of work and then had to cut some things out for editorial reasons. And, you know, did they want to expand on anything? But I would hope that you were given a relatively carte blanche uh, um, editorial space for this (laughs) since it was ultimately your decision. But all kidding aside, are there any kind of other things that you wanted to touch upon that are not obviously part of your conversation? or wanted to expand upon um, uh, and give us some final thoughts here. I
1: would hope that people would understand that um, if a manuscript gets rejected that it was something you know that wasn't personal they shouldn't take it personally they should end up you know having a another plan of you know a second or a third choice of journals to end up submitting their work to. I mean, I think in the critical care category, uh, there may be more this year, but last year there were 33 journals that qualified there. I mean, Chester is also listed in the critical care uh, category, so there are 33 critical care journals that have an impact factor. And in the respiratory field last year, there were 59. There may even be more now. So, you know, there are other journals to end up submitting your work uh, to. We've had uh, people, you know, say to us, you know, why, why did you really reject the paper? I never missed an opportunity to get back to them to say the following. Uh, I mean, and then this is true. Uh, so we use a priority scoring system to help us make our final decisions. And so we've actually encouraged our reviewers to let us know if they think that out of a priority score, uh, five being the top, um, that... To advance the field, we would expect you know an article to get a score of four or five out of five. Generally speaking, when a manuscript gets rejected, it's because it has a priority score less than that. And so when it's gotten a three, um, we'll let the people know when they say, like, well,, well how did you make the final decision?" Um, so it ended up getting a three and while well, three is a good score. It unfortunately is not high enough to successfully compete for publication in CHEST at this time, and uh, you know, people may not be aware of the uh, acceptance rate for original research in CHEST. It it, it turns out to be 8 percent, which means that 92 percent of original research that gets sent to CHEST ends up getting rejected. Um, I would want people uh, to know that. And to know that there are many, many other journals with impact factors that would probably be very happy to, you know, receive uh, a submission from them. Um, So, you know, I didn't put that in the commentary, but, um, you know, I would want
0: people to know that. No, I think, I mean, I know you've had the same experience that I've had. You you share the one where you were rejected by multiple journals. You know, if you really believe you have a good work and it's been rejected by CHESS, given that 92% of them ultimately are from an original research perspective, um, there's a journal out there somewhere with, with an impact factor that will, I'm sure, be the good match for your work. And, you know, I would always advise the people that I mentor, like, it got rejected by one, two, three, four journals, that doesn't mean you're not going to publish it somewhere, you know, and don't kill the article, Um, unless obviously it's so fatally flawed in every review you're getting back, Um, but you need to broaden your thought process, right? Yeah, so,
1: and it probably would have been a good idea if I had also put in this commentary that last year I had one of my manuscripts actually rejected at Chess, so... (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, they, when, when, you I, go. <laughs> when I submit a manuscript to chess, I mean, there's a firewall between me and, uh, you of know, course. the review process. And I've had my manuscripts, uh, you know, also rejected. One of my junior faculty uh, uh, here at UMass, uh, maybe three or four years ago, ended up getting a rejection. And I was on the paper and he goes like, you know, I. I think I'm going to be on suicide precautions. I mean, I, I, ended up, I ended up submitting a manuscript to your journal, and they rejected it. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> How bad is this paper? <laughs> That 's it ended up It ended up getting accepted someplace else of course, of course that 's just part of the process. Well, I think maybe the other thing, and, and you can affirm this or not in, in closing, I guess, but um, you know sometimes too, especially if it 's not original research, I know that the journal gets unsolicited reviews. Well, you know, but if that topic was reviewed only a year year and a half ago, unless there 's been some major shifts and updates in the literature. We're not going to publish it again. We've we've already been there. Everyone's still quoting that article or you know, pulling that article. And so it's an issue of for the submitter to do a little bit of background research on the journal to find out, you know, when's the last time an article on whatever was published here. And maybe now it is time. And so thank you for this unsolicited review. But uh, otherwise, no thanks. I'm sure it's well written, but we've already been on that subject. Right. Absolutely. Right. Well, Richard, I can't thank you enough for both your time and then obviously your 14 years of leadership. I mean, it's it's and for myself personally, you know, having been lucky enough to be on the editorial board uh, with you and, and be involved. Um, your leadership's obviously been spectacular for the journal. We've seen the growth of the journal and its, its prestige and its impact factor and all the other measurements that, that you highlight in the commentary. Um, so thank you so very much for your time and your effort and your mentorship and your leadership. Well,
1: Kyle, thank you very much, and I can't tell you how much I've appreciated actually working with you, and
0: you've done a phenomenal job, so thank you. I appreciate that as well. Thank you. (laughs) Now you just made my day. All right, well, thank you so much, Richard. This was awesome. Great.